Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film. According to his official biography, Jeff Scher is a painter who makes experimental films and an experimental filmmaker who paints. In some ways, the two are pretty indivisible, as Cher is a filmmaker who regularly hand-paints and animates films using a technique called rotoscoping. More on that later. Jeff graduated from Bard College in 1976, and now teaches film and animation at NYU. In his own work, his interests range from the personal, with animated impressions of scenes from his life, including the birth of his son in the film You Won't Remember This, the work of behavioural psychologists, including Rorschach, in films like Bang Bang, and the political, addressing such major events as 9-11 and the murder of George Floyd in the resulting global Black Lives Matter movement. Many of Jeff's films were created for the New York Times, and his works screen in innumerable film festivals all over the world. Occasionally working in music videos, he has collaborated with such legendary figures as Joan Byers, Bob Dylan, and more recently Graham Nash. His regular musical collaborator is Shay Lynch, whose work we're currently hearing in the background. Jeff has also won a Creative Arts Emmy Award for his production design on the HBO Holocaust documentary The Tattoo on Great Grandpa's Arm. Jeff was kind enough to take the time to speak with me for this episode from his studio at his home in Connecticut, and for the purposes of context in our later discussion, this was recorded just two days after the verdict in the trial of the police officer charged with the murder of George Floyd. Way back in, in episode one, Pip Chodorov mentioned that you were somebody who really embraced the term experimental quite wholeheartedly. Um, so why do you feel that is? You know, um, a lot of my films are genuinely experimental. I don't know how they're going to turn out before I start. And that's sort of the whole point, is to like have an idea and then to see how it plays out. So the film literally, you know, begins with a series of experiments where I say, like, what happens if I you know, do this, 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 and this in that sequence. And then I look at it, it's basically an experiment and the, the end result is what you look at. And then you, you know, the next experiment is based on exploiting what you learned from the previous one. So it's like a sort of pyramid of experiments or links of experiments that lead you to, um, you know, a new technique or like just a new angle. I mean, it can be experiments like not just in terms of technique, but also in terms of theme and you know, like emotion and musical things. But like, I love not knowing how it's going to turn out so that each trip is like, you know, uh, like like an adventure. It really, it makes it more fun and more exciting and completely like more dangerous because I do that with jobs also. Like I, I pitch stuff to clients that I, I don't know if I can do. <laughs> and, it, and there's a deadline on it. So, you yeah. know, you go to this sort of frantic, it's really fun. It's like, it's it, it's how to raise the stakes as much as possible to make to make you sort of slightly reckless but but to get momentum and to just make it like see how it turns out i have a, a thing with this show that i try to demystify terminology as much as possible so in case anyone listening isn't sure what exactly is rotoscope sure rotoscoping is uh it's using live action footage uh, as a reference. And it, it's essentially a direct reference. Uh, in a sense, you're, you're doing tracebacks. So you have like, and it's, it's been used throughout animation history. It was patented by Max Fleischer in some like 1919 or something like that. And 
it goes to the very beginning of animation. Disney used it. Um, like, you know, you can always tell when a character is rotoscoped because they have a surreally realistic quality to their motions. The way I use rotoscoping is I have a projector aimed down at my animation stand. So I have, I, I shoot film, uh, you know, it used to be like a film projector, but now it's uh, so much more convenient. It's a digital projector. Yeah, so um, I see the image on my, on my drawing table. So it's very easy to uh, embrace any, any, or inherit any part of the image you know, in direct relationship to its like perspective and color and it's, it's a tool. And it, it could be like as boring and creaky as, as like just tracing back, or it could be as exciting as a complete like sort of just extraction of the motion and, you know, re-energized in the process of painting. And I, 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 my rotoscope is, I project down onto the paper, which seems a small difference from the traditional way, which is back projected. Robert Breer, he used a moviola to rotoscope off of, which so it was backlit from a, a not very good prism. I never understood why. He, he liked it because the index cards fit on it. And then Max Fleischer's was also back projected. But the advantage of projecting on top is that you can work on opaque paper. I mean, you, you could rotoscope onto rocks. And and when you when you're back projected, Every time you make a stroke, if the paint's opaque, the image disappears. Whereas if it's top projected, every stroke, you know, has no effect. It just it, it just continues the projection surface because there's an image coming down on it. So it makes a big difference if you're going to use collage or oil paint. Or I mean, you're basically just extracting, uh, you know, the forms and sequence mm. out of live action. What first drew you to? filmmaking and to animation? You know, uh, my, my mother's a painter. My father was like an amateur sculptor. And um, it seemed like the medium that had the least competition with. <laughs> um, and film, you know, film, film was always amazing to me. I was, you know, my, 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 the biggest emotional experiences were always connected to cinema. And um, it just seemed a way to be incredibly uh, mischievous um, in a dramatic manner. And uh, I had a friend whose father was in advertising and he had a Kodak Cine 16, which was like the Rolls Royce of, of movie cameras, um, even better than a Bolex, because uh, it had a, a matte box and, and a filter slot that you could put different uh, wipe mats into and it could shoot forwards, backwards, single frame, and it had all these motors and the lenses were unbelievable. So um, I sort of permanently borrowed it and um, was immediately, uh, you know, in, in the days of film, it was just so expensive to make film. So like a roll of film was, you know, I used to do, I used to like sneak lunches and get lunch money. And then, I mean, this is like, you know, elementary school. Um, so I used to like save up the lunch money. <laughs> I could buy it for two, if I skipped lunch for two weeks, I could have enough to buy one roll of Kodachrome and then another two weeks to process it. So I, I, could, I could afford like two and a half minutes a month. Um, that was like my cineration. And I immediately discovered the single frame button made it, you know, turned it in from two and a half minutes into 4,000 frames. And the control and the, you know, the like, um, the opportunities for 
pure cinematic invention between the frames was so much more exciting than you know orchestrating something between shots or in the course of live action uh so yeah i mean the mechanism immediately uh, and, and and the necessities of being able to afford it uh just immediately led me to playing with animation hmm. So, and I, I looked up books on animation. I mean, I never took a, I never took an animation class. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of self-teaching. I mean, that actually, that leads us on to the, the, the next question I've got written down here, because um, there seems to be a lot of collage in your work and also varying the materials that you use. So you've got animations that involve watercolor paint or pastel and but also newsprint magazine cuttings postcards um so is varying the material that you use really important yeah it's exciting i mean every time you get a new like a new kind of paint it's like well what can you do you know it's like it's like every time you go for a drive you have a new car um and you get to like experience what's special and cool about it so uh i mean i guess it's a little bit more exciting than a new car i think <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like each paint, every, every medium has its own personality and things that it, it, you know, rewards certain activities or events or like, you know, playing with it in a certain way. And, and it has its own personality. So all of that gets inherited into the look and how you incorporate that or how you exploit it, uh, makes a world of difference in the final film. And sometimes it just can suggest a whole new direction in, in the film. Like I've been doing this, uh, you know, I do a lot of experiments that don't wind up being films, you know, like they're, they're like films in waiting. Um, but one of my like big films in waiting is uh, on a music video. Once I did a whole bunch of uh, uh, finger paint, um, which was, was half backlit and half top lit. So it had like a translucency and the paint is sort of semi-transparent. Anyway, it looked amazing and it was really cool. And there was this one moment in the music, a totally forgettable music video. But I've been going back, continuously exploring that. Like, and I mean, I'm waiting for the right job to, or right idea to exploit that technique. But it's just an example where the the uh, finger paint, this weird stuff, mixing basically starch with pigment and glycerin, um, gives a weird quality of paint that creates this other quality of light and color that. Um, and, and also that you're working with fingers and making impressions in it. It's just a whole nother look, a direct result of that choice of material. Because of the varying the materials, you're, you're, you're quite clearly not uh, married to any particular medium, it sounds like. Or married to them all. It's like you, you just have like a very large palette and, you know, you, you get to address each subject with mm. the specificity of what that does best, you know. Like pastels are a completely different medium than like water medium, you yeah. know, than like gouache or, or watercolor. Um, you know, the, the last like couple of months I've been really like deep into gouache. Uh, there's a new kind of acrylic gouache, Liquitex came out with it. And I, I, it's, the colors are great, it's really fun. Everything you do has this sort of intense vivacity because of the heavy pigmentation yeah. and the matte finish. You mentioned in some of the film notes on on the DVD, but also on your Vimeo page, that you know inspiration can come from absolutely anything at all. So, how how often do you think that your own mood influences the outcome of the film? 
You know, it's really funny because once you start a film, you sort of become in service of the film mm. and your mood is less relevant than um, completing the task. Mm. Like the film starts to make its own demands and it's, you could be in a terrible mood or a really great mood. It doesn't really make all that difference. Like the act of painting is sort of semi-therapeutic and it has the ability to kind of change your mood also or improve your mood. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if how, how, I mean, with the exception of, you know, the political stuff where you're angry, um, you know, I mean, like, so actually it's more like the, material that you're working on influences your mood more than your mood influences the material you know like the the holocaust film i worked on you called the number on great grandpa's arm that was like it was at least four or five months of drawing nothing but concentration camps um you know nazi various like you know things from world war ii but you know horrendous images um so that that was really dark like going down that hole um, so that was like the work taking me down. There's quite a tonal shift, isn't there, within even non-political ones, you know, from reasons to be glad to Garden of Regrets. There's quite a tonal shift. Yeah. So, so that's driven no, by... Garden of Regrets was about my divorce. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, and reasons to be glad is a commercial for cinema. Yeah, yeah. They're both very, very communicative. I mean, you wouldn't need, you wouldn't necessarily need to know that Garden of Regrets is about a, is about a divorce to respond to it, would you? Um, no, and I, I mean that I, I don't. I, I haven't made those kind of films in a while. But um, the 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 labyrinthical montage of those films, the whole idea was that they would have a kind of dreamlike disconnect to the images. So, like there would be like raw material, like like you would see these. You you would you would be able to invent your own narrative by what you bring into it. Um, yeah, and that and that there's there. It was, there were experiments in like that kind of open-ended storytelling. And it was very much influenced also by uh, Warren Sonbert. He was a filmmaker who tragically died in the first wave of AIDS, but um, he made really great, very um, like longish films, like 30, 60 minutes that were montages of travel, everyday events and all live action that he filmed. But every cut had like, it was like Vertov, you know, that there was, you knew that there was an intention in the filmmaker's head, but yeah. still there was enough openness that you brought your own interpretation to it. I thought it was really like an exciting new frontier of storytelling. And sometimes when those films were shown in galleries and stuff, like hanging out in the gallery and talking to people after they, they would watch it was really, really cool. Um, one time there was a woman, uh, she was uh, Indian. She came out after the screening and said, I know what your film is about. I just watched it seven times. And then she told me this incredible story that was totally news to me, but <laughs> was the best. So having that kind of like open-endedness of it, um, it takes a little work like for an audience, hmm. but you know, it's fun. And at the same time, they, they are like just sort of, you know, the idea that every frame is slightly different so that there's like something sort of hypnotically um, compelling about not being able to take your eyes off it because there's mm-hmm. so much cumulative motion both how stuff moves and then the texture of of, of what the images are composed of there are some really personal aspects in in some of the films as well i'm thinking you know particularly things like you won't remember this or you might remember this which are about 
your your son um but do you often make films like this and then show them to family members yeah you know um they're all they'll watch the kids watch them but they're pretty immune to their charms <laughs> um and my wife is a graphic designer and uh so she she appreciates it more than yeah. me <laughs> she you know in fact this thing i'm working on now like you know i was like sort of I've, I was, I'm about 45 seconds into a two and a half minute piece and the, I was like, okay. And I showed it to her and she like, she cried. She said like, this is so beautiful. It was like, okay, I guess it's working. <laughs> so it, it's amazing to have that in house and, and her, our studios are adjoining. Right. I mean, are the, are the studios in your own home or are these a set, are they in a separate place? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the Hurricane Sand, we were in Dumbo in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. my studio was uh, on the waterfront, but mm -hmm. below uh, sea level. And <laughs> it filled up with 14 feet of water. Oh. Um, so I basically, you know, I, I, I had like about 10 minutes to pull stuff out. So I pulled out all the negatives and my camera uh, and my watercolors and everything else was lost. It's like all my work pre that year. Um, so, you know, we cleaned it up and blah, blah, but um, I wanted, my, my goal was to move above sea level, whatever it took. Um, so we moved to Connecticut and I'm uh, 200 feet above sea level now. And the place we bought has, uh, it's an 1830 uh, house that used to be the town, um, it was like the town service station for cars. So mm -hmm. in the back is a, a car garage for you know, like, like a gas station garage, um, and then a separate building next to that, and then a barn. So each of us took a building. Um, so I've got the barn. But yeah, so, you know, it's, I'm only an hour from the city, so I, I still yeah. commute to teach at NYU. Do you think that the, the city of New York influences the way that you make, make your work, or has influenced the way? Absolutely. I, I mean, when I was in high school, like, uh, or I guess, yeah, like high school, I discovered New York City big time. Um, I just went there constantly. And then after college, I moved there and I lived there for 35, 40 years, 40 years. Mm -hmm. So it was really only, this is like, like, you know, the late years we've moved up to the Hicks. I mean, it's really true of like any place, but in New York, it's really intense that it's a 24 hour movie that never repeats. That yeah. wherever you look, there's some like unique uh, intersection of people, events, and um, architecture and light that makes it just endlessly compelling. And of course, that then provides the sort of groundwork for your for the first film that I've seen in your collection, which is NYC, which is not a uh, rotoscope animation. It's yeah. There's no. It's live action. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was. That was funny. It was supposed to be um, the overture to a much longer film that I worked on for like 10 years um, and never finished just because it got too big and too expensive. But NYC was really influenced by Francis Thompson. He's one of my heroes, um, a big influence. When, you know, there was, he made a film called To Be Alive that was shown at the, oh. the 65 World's Fair that I saw when I was 10 that just blew me away. I begged Is, is he kid. the guy that did... Um... Uh, NYNY. 
Yeah, New York, New York. Yeah, it's a fantastic film, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he went on to to be the head of film production for NASA. So he was, you know, he had his, he had an amazing career. Um, he also invented that a 360 degree camera system. He also, in, he was one of the founders of IMAX. But yeah, the, that film really influenced NYC, just to go back to the, that, yeah. that film. Um, you know, the idea that, I mean, I, I, there was a Goethe quote that really impressed me. That he said that, that uh, architecture is frozen music. So the film set out to, like, the premise of the film was like, okay, cinema should defrost that music, i.e., you know, put time and rhythm back into it. Um, but, but there's like an inherent rhythm in the architecture. Like the flat iron has a totally different, that is a completely different rhythm than, you know, say like what replaced the World Trade Center, that, that like odd washing machine. Just on a, on a complete side note, were you there at, uh, at the destruction of the, the World Trade Center? Yeah, I was teaching, um, I was on my way to school and uh, I was living on 16th Street at the time. A shadow of a, a plane darkened the entire block. It was that low. And I, I thought it was a propeller plane. And I, and I thought it was just a crazy person flying way too low. And then when I hit the corner of Fifth Avenue, I looked down because I, I knew this plane was going to hit something. It was way too low. And I watched it as it went into the building. And I, I had a, a movie, a video camera with me. And I pulled it out and shot 30 seconds after the impact. But like, it was like, oh man, that is like really messed up. But I'm still going to class. And I went to class. Mm. Um, and then my wife called and said a second one hit. And that was the moment when, it, you know, everybody realized that. It. And um, so I, I, I went down. Um, I didn't get very close because the police were um, really being aggressive at that point. I loaded up. I had I was shooting with a Beaulieu, the French camera 16. And I brought that down and a cop thought it was a gun. Throw down your weapon and like these two cops drew guns on me and anyway it was that kind of scene makes a case against exotic cameras <laughs> yeah <laughs> those political films that we mentioned and, and you sort of mentioned that there's there's an inherent anger in those but do you are you commissioned to make a political film or do you set out thinking this is something that i need to say something about well fortunately like the the three most political things i did were commissioned by right. like-minded people so it's great. It sort of empowered it and guaranteed that it was going to get seen. I, I guess we also the John Baez film, The President Sang Amazing Grace, a video I made for her. And um, it was really, it was amazing. Like just that you could be hired to do something that you believe in. Um, it's sort of the opposite of when I make a commercial. You know, and, and also like the last four years, it's just really felt like everything is in danger and that... Uh, you know, this nothing undermines abstract art more than political urgency. You know, it's hard to like grow flowers when the field is burning. The 9-11 film was a kind of attempt to do abstraction in a political context. It's uh, funny, I made that film for the New York Times um, and it was out of like, I don't know, 40 films I made for them, it was the only one they rejected. It was like too close, the nerve was raw. They were afraid that it would be misinterpreted. I mean, they almost ran it. It was like there was like a lot of debate, and but mm. in the end, they 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 demurred. That film also that was inspired by the music. Shay, my composer, the composer I worked with for a bunch of years, um, 
had been commissioned by uh, his hometown high school orchestra to write a piece um, commemorating 9-11. And uh, I thought the piece was just magnificent. September morning commemorating 9-11, rather than using traditional methods of animation, uses macro photography as watercolour paint moves across pieces of paper to the sounds of Shay Lynch's remarkable score, part of which you're hearing now. This is very much the darker side of Jeff's films, but there's plenty of levity to be found elsewhere, not least in his playful methods. You know, my, my, my quest is to find out what too much is. Like, more and more and more. Like, let's see what the max is. I hit one too much one time. I did these short, uh, these intros for the Shorts International Film Festival. It was a, a film festival that was sponsored by one of the big theater chains in New York. So they would show the trailers announcing the film festival and the whole chain. So it was like 60 theaters in the, like from Connecticut to New Jersey that would show these weird avant-garde 35 millimeter films um, that I made to promote the festival. And because Kodak was a sponsor, I used it as a way to like get free film out of Kodak. So I designed the trailer to be composed of tons of little pieces of film, all taped together, like physically taped together. So the first one I made was, um, I think it was 14 strips of film all taped together and then shot on an Oxbury backlit. So I, the next year I thought like, okay, let's do the most we can possibly do. So I went to 50 strips of film um, and it was, I made the whole thing, like 50 strips. It was huge. And it, it, it so it was like, it was like if, if you had a movie film that was a meter wide. So we shot it. And then when we looked at it, there was an optical phenomenon that we sort of fell into. You couldn't look at it without feeling nauseous. It was overwhelming. The mosaic of strobe. The, my cameraman was, was this Cuban guy and he turns to me and goes, we got a problem. You kind of look at this shit. <laughs> so we reshot it. We just shot the middle. There can't be too much, which is was exciting to hit there, but it was unfortunate that the uh, reaction was so visceral. If it's okay, just to bring up another favorite of uh, of mine, which is um, the uh, the piece called Yours, where oh, you're yeah. using found footage but treating it in a really unusual way. How was that actually achieved? The idea of the film was to see if I could make three films at the same time. Um, so I had this old, uh, it was a scopetone, if you're familiar with those. It was a music video before music videos. There, there were 16 millimeter films that were made to be shown as films in bars. The idea was to make a high contrast positive of it and a high contrast negative of it and to use those as traveling mats. Um, shooting with a bipacked Oxbury. I mean, it's a lot of words for shooting through another piece of film, but positive and negative. Mm. Uh, and I got to tell you this, there's a weird little backstory to it. Um, so I, I, I submitted it to the New York Film Festival and it wound up being shown opening night in front of the Woody Allen film. And the next day there was a little mention of it in the Times and I got a phone call um, from somebody who, he said, is this Jeff Shearer? I said, yes, he goes, who are you? Excuse me? Um, Turns out this guy's um, father wrote the music, which oh. I had not gotten permission for because the soundy was public domain. But the weird thing is, 
He had the same last name as me and we're related. So I somehow out of, I had a reel of 50 of these soundies and the one I picked was written by a missing relative. So what, 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 what could have been like, you know, being busted for copyright infringement turned out to be like this delightful family reunion. Something, it feels like there's something very complex and mysterious that's happened there, doesn't it? Something or like just this weird genetic predisposition that emerges yeah. in the oddest of context. How do you think is the best way to enjoy experimental film? I, I think the main thing is to start, if you start with the good stuff, the really good stuff, I think there, there's like a sort of pantheon of like just filmmakers who are films that are truly magical and transformative and universal in their appeal. And if you can start there, that's like sort of the ideal beachhead. I would say like, you know, anything by Kenneth Anger, um, like all of Bruce Bailey's early films, you know, they're films that are so um, elegant and generous and universal in their, um, you know, seductiveness, that they're irresistible. And that once you like create that hunger and also like a kind of benchmark for how pleasurable it and aesthetically moving it can be, then you can um, venture forth and, and, and look at other work that is equally challenging, but maybe not of that level that the, the reward will justify the search. You know, and, and, and the other thing also is like, the more you know about them, I think the more you appreciate them too. I think that yeah. the text and context can really be helpful. It, or like, you know, Mary Menken's films. I mean, they're films that like just, you can't not love. You know, Warhol portraits, films that, 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 that just immediately confront your relationship with cinema, but at the same time reward it with this other perspective. The whole idea of like shaking off what a narrative is. But I, I think it's really evolving very much. Like I think we're in the biggest period of transition in terms of cinema. Like what people watch now is yeah. so different than what people watched even like 10 years ago. I mean, I would encourage everyone to like play with their cameras. The best camera in the world is always the camera that you have in your pocket. And we all have the same camera essentially. So it's really super democratic. When you see something that's amazing, photograph it. Take the extra moment to like see it differently. Photography can become an excuse to study something really carefully. And then to you know, learn something that then goes back into how you photograph it. So as a, as a tool for like exploring the world or appreciating it and sharing your perspectives, everyone should, should, should play with it as much as possible. Like it, what makes it a movie is it has a beginning, a middle and an end. Be spontaneous. And the other thing is finish, like make films, finish them. Little 10 second clips are lovely, but it's not like a movie until it has a title and an end credit. Making films is a way of sharing your perspective and your experiences. And it's as close as you'll get to immortality of thoughts and feelings. 
If you've enjoyed what you've heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. My thanks to Jeff for being so generous with his time and insight, and for his permission to use sound clips from his films. The music for this show is by Gabriel Ness. Be sure to check out Jeff's films on Vimeo, or seek out the DVDs in the Revoir store. Thanks very much for listening, and do tune in next time.